Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm really excited to be sitting right here in the studio with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco and other projects. And Wilco have quite an excellent new album coming out called Ode to Joy. And we'll be talking about that and hopefully a bunch of other stuff. How are you, Jeff? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's an honor. So I was interested in something that you were saying about this record and your thoughts on rock, which is that, I'll paraphrase you, but that rockist music was complicit in this moment in some way and that you felt weird about it, which I guess affects the kind of musical moves you're doing and the way you're thinking about music. I thought that was provocative. (laughs) I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Well, I think that one of the things I feel like I've observed in the town I grew up in and in this general political environment is a lot of people very resistant to change and a lot more focused in a fear-based way on retaining something that they feel like they earned and they have from the past, as opposed to very, you know, there's not a whole lot of discussion about how we could make a better future or let's problem solve or let's do, you know, there's not a lot of forward thinking, in my opinion, at this critical moment (laughs) in our history. And it reminded me of my experience, my feeling listening to a lot of records that you would call rock or rock-based records in the last 10, 15 years or so, I tend to get the feeling a lot of times and maybe even listening to some of my own records that there's a fear of losing an audience. There's a fear that is antithetical to what I believe is the most important aspect of rock and roll to me growing up was the self-actualization or the self-liberation that it promoted. And the idea that you should be pushing forward, you should be challenging the status quo, you should be challenging your own perception of yourself, you should be able to invent yourself. And I don't hear that on a lot of music that would claim to be rock and roll these days. What I hear is a lot of what happens to most sort of traditional jazz records or classical music or things that are in the business of being preserved at this moment. And you can make an argument that that's, you know, that's a cultural moment that passed and maybe that's the only thing you can do is a folk idiom or something is preserve it. But I still see the spirit of what I'm talking about in hip hop records and a lot of other types of music that have managed to avoid that fear or younger artists that don't feel like they've earned anything yet, you know, and are a little bit less uh, concerned with maintaining some status or something. But complicit is a strong word. Yeah. Well, I think it is complicit in a way, because I think if you're an artist, if you claim to be an artist, you claim to be putting art out into the world, you should be maybe a little bit more at the forefront of self-examination and trying to figure out what your role in this culture is. And if you're promoting something that has such a, I don't think it's a consciousness of it, even I was like, complicit implies some consciousness, I suppose. But I don't think it's necessary for it to be apt. You can be complicit as a parent in just being negligent, (laughs) you know, if you're raising kids that are getting into trouble or something like that. Or you don't do do you don't agree? No, I'm just curious. I, I think you're getting at actually a really big topic. And it's like, there is probably some reassessment that's going to happen of the rock canon. And actually, in some ways, has been happening for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to keep happening. And certain things will come to the forefront. And certain things will get pushed back. Does Led Zeppelin sound completely different now that when you're thinking about uh, some of their behavior, you know, that kind of thing. And we'll be getting there. Well, Artifact, I mean, that's that's a little bit different because that's reappraising something that happened in a different 
time, a different zeitgeist or whatever. You know, I, I don't think that the music is going to sound different, but is there responsibility, I think, is the question for some of the lifestyles that were promoted that are extremely damaging and hurtful to a lot of people. Certainly the misogyny that's just completely accepted and I think promoted also in a lot of music from those time periods. But I'm talking more about some band that's been around a while in 2020 or 2019 making a record. And, you know, a lot of maybe I'm projecting because there's a lot of things that maybe a band like Wilco has to concern itself with that maybe not every other band does because we've been around a little bit longer or a lot longer than a lot of bands. And so we do have an audience that's been paying attention to us for a, a while now. And there is an impulse to protect that or to reconfirm that. So maybe it's easier for me to point the finger back at myself. I'm being honest when I say I hear it in other people's records, though. But I can only recognize it because I felt it and I felt it in myself and wondered whether or not I'm complicit in this moment and that I'm not always willing to be uncomfortable. But uh, I think it's part of my job to try and push myself to be a little uncomfortable from time to time, or maybe all the time. <laughs> and I'm uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am perfectly comfortable. No. So how did that affect what you actually did on this album? Because it, it is a very interesting album. At the same time, it's not like it's a rap album or anything. You didn't like completely erase the slate and start over. So how did that affect things? I think it is inspired in a lot of ways by the records that I feel are more forward thinking and future driven. Like, like a lot of hip hop records and people like Kate LeBon and what hip hop in particular? Oh, <laughs> everybody yeah. assumes that my <laughs> kids, you know, turn me on to hip hop. I listen to a lot of music. I really love being disoriented by something new and trying to figure it out. And like JPEG Mafia and clipping and you know, there's just two people that actually managed to make some contact with in the last year or so because I've been pretty inspired by. I guess maybe people look at it as experimental rap or something. But I think in general, the hip hop world is completely unconcerned with legacy. If you do something that was done a month ago, you're kind of, you know, dead and everything has to be new. And I think there's some cultural elements to that that are pretty interesting to contemplate because, you know, it's coming out of a community that has had its culture stolen from them repeatedly. And so I think at some point it became like, okay, well then try this. You can't do this. I'm doing this this week. And you're still trying to figure out what I did last week, you know. If I hear the hip hop influence on this record, I guess it's in that it, it seems very much built on combination of drums and acoustic guitar and everything mm -hmm. else is kind of a decoration. Sometimes a very prominent decoration, but mm -hmm. the base of the thing seems to be those two instruments for the most part. Yeah. I mean, we weren't trying to make a hip hop record. I'm not even trying to sonically sound like any record. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a really good place to start any project making some rules. And for us, some of the rules were no referencing our record collections. Don't say I want a guitar part that sounds like the birds, you know, say I want to sound more despondent <laughs> or, you know, try and use words that are going to force you to be imaginative or be creative. I mean, they're not hard and fast rules that you have to adhere to, but I think they were helpful, you know, like that rule to not just use our vocabulary and our references to old records as a way to kind of avoid being creative ourselves. I think it's pretty safe to say a lot of those records, no one was saying make it sound like something else. They were pretty thrilled to hear what they sounded like. That helped kind of clear the palette a little bit. The other thing is like um, the drums are really, really primal and Glenn can play almost anything. He's a very, very adept, virtuosic drummer. And I've kind of just put the idea in his head that 
he has nothing to prove. And that if he's doing anything with the idea of it being an, a showcase of his ability, as opposed to being an emotional component of the song or the record, that he should rethink it. And I was also pointing out that a lot of people can learn a lot of licks and can become virtuosos. But I was really trying to get our focus to be more on how can you hit a drum so that no one else could hit it that way? Or have one hit of a drum be as exciting as a lot of drumming you know like i wanted to hear the head or be able to hear into it more so it's like i don't know each drum hit was thought of as being more complex than just a timekeeper or a showcase of some sort of ability there are noticeably cool drum sounds all over this records which is i guess that's the, great the simpleton way of <laughs> describing what you're talking about yeah in fact let's hear the beginning of the very first song bright leaves which it mm -hmm. starts as a statement perhaps it starts with just some drums yeah You did some solo work and mm -hmm. then went into this. How, if at all, did that affect going back to the Wilco construct? Actually, when I'm home, I'm at the studio. I like to be there and I make a lot more music than I could ever put out in my life. And that's just, it's kind of my hobby. <laughs> it's also the thing I get to do professionally, which is kind of amazing. But after doing two solo records, there were still a ton of songs that I'd been working on that didn't fit into either one of those records. And I'd been kind of, I think, subconsciously maybe setting aside for Wilco. And then there was also, I think half the record is just new material that once I started to develop Sonic Landscape, for the record, it was a kind of a, a conscious effort to make its own cohesive environment sonically. Then I, I started thinking of songs, new songs that would fit into that environment. But there's some older songs like uh, Love is Everywhere and Everyone Hides and Hold Me Anyway are like three songs that have been around a while and, and never quite been recorded correctly or maybe fleshed out in a way that felt compelling. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE, that's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E, for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee, from the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more. Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. I love We Were Lucky. It's a really great song. Let's hear that for a minute if we can. What can you tell me about just putting that one together? Well, that's like the last song I wrote for the record, and it was... 
I really wanted to have some catharsis on the record and some, after avoiding for a big portion of the record, the electric guitar being a prominent part of, I don't know how the record reaches people's ears. I don't know. Just to have it come crashing back into focus. And that's kind of the opposite of some of the conversations I have with Glenn. It was, you know, Nels, I think a lot of people think Nels gets underutilized in Wilco because mm. he's an extremely virtuosic guitar player and, and makes these incredible accomplished, sophisticated records on his own. But when he comes to Wilco, he likes being textural. And a lot of times that's not me directing him to tone it down. I think he's over time become really, he's really satisfied being a part of the tonal texture of the record and and more atmospheric and things like that. So this conversation with Nels was more along the lines of, you need to bring it. You just, you know, we need to have some sort of fire or catastrophe happen on this record and and <laughs> that's up to you <laughs> Nels on a like purely commercial level that could be an opening track for a record if it wasn't so uncharacteristic and if you weren't very cleverly saving that guitar fusillade mm -hmm. for near the end yeah I don't know I don't like I mean the record had a sort of a thematic sequence that was really hard to shake just based on kind of the order we recorded the songs even so it starts in a much more disorienting place than where it ends up and I think that was by design I mean I, I'm pretty convinced that there aren't very many people listening to whole records these days so that makes me actually I think I enjoy putting a lot of effort into the sequence of the record because I know Perversely. that they're... Yeah, perverse. Well, well, also because I think that that's kind of a way of acknowledging and reaching out to the people that I feel like are more in the habit of listening to records the way I do. I mean, that's we are losing something if people aren't listening to records in order. But I feel like we should be allowed to mourn that a little bit. <laughs> sure. I mean, I don't think it's going to go away, but it is an arbitrary thing that we grew accustomed to based on technology, the length of a record record is limited by physics. <laughs> you know, like a vinyl record was pretty hard to make one sound good if you put more than 20 something minutes on each side. So alternatively, you could now make a playlist of the entire vocal catalog and just hit shuffle. If exactly. Well, better. I mean, so that that could conceivably be exciting. Maybe somebody could just spend their whole life making a catalog of music that they release on their deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> and just put it all out at once. It's just like no arc to the career. No, There's a, a certain foreboding that I think is representative of the era that kind of pervades the record, uh, especially sonically and sometimes lyrically. I think when I hear Citizens, it feels a little bit more directly, if elliptically, about what's going on right now. I could be wrong. Wow, tight, I definitely have tried to shy away from topical protest songs and making I don't know, references that would require context in songs. At the same time, I want to be honest emotionally, and I think that there are songs on the record that are referring to, at least in some slanted way, to the environment that I feel like everybody I know is a little bit more depressed, a little bit more on edge, a little bit more concerned about a lot of big things. And there's a lot of impotent rage, a lot of feeling that you don't have a, you know, you can't really do very much. And so those things come out, I think, here and there, but I don't think there are any direct references. High times, high crimes, medals for you to salute. I don't know. Yeah. High times, high crimes. A lot of times I write lyrics with the news on with just the sound down. 
So a lot of my iPhone, like early recordings of songs, like a sketched idea on my voice memo, will have songs like uh, Collusion. <laughs> All the working titles are, you know, uh, Creepy Porn Lawyer, you know, whatever. So and occasionally I think that's the way some lyrics end up being sort of impressionistically kind of left behind. Like I would go through and clean up some of the stuff and then sometimes it sounds good and it's still accurate to the way the song feels and it doesn't distract. So I'll leave something that's a little bit clearer or a little bit more in focus like that. You have at this point pretty serious facility as a songwriter, as a maker of records. You produce records for other people, whether it's Mavis Staples or whoever. Is there any party that tries to subvert all your sort of facility so it's not too easy or so it's not predictable? Because I sometimes hear, it sometimes sounds to me like you're doing that. Sometimes I sound bad. No, uh, no, quite the opposite. <laughs> well, I think I sound bad. I think that there's, I kind of think that you have to sound bad before you sound good. And a lot of times people become fearful of sounding bad and that stops them from pushing through that to something more exciting or fresher or, you know. Uh-huh. No, I feel like I've got some really handy built-in limitations. If you're looking at limitations as being something that inspires creativity, which I kind of do. I kind of think that if you have a, a small set of tools to work with, you end up coming up with a more clever solution to a problem. Or I look at all my songs as problems. <laughs> No, I think that uh, definitely think about process more than what my abilities are. And I try not to see. I always feel like the opposite. I don't feel like I'm particularly adept at playing the guitar or any one thing that you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> but I do stay in some zone where I can hear something and then I have to figure out if I can play it. And a lot of times that's the only real breakthroughs I've made as a musician have come from, I can hear it, but I can't play it. And then I'll take the time to practice it until I can play it. So you compose in your head a lot of times? Like basically you can hear a finished arrangement in your head or something like it? No, it's more like after I do the things that come easiest in the order of whatever process I'm using. Say, for example, I turn on a drum machine and get a drum beat and then strum an acoustic guitar and come up with a chord progression that I find interesting, hum a melody over it that I think could work, put a bass on it. Then I might start to hear, oh, I think a pedal steel guitar part would sound cool here. I don't know how to play the pedal steel. What should I do? And this is more, I think, probably the benefits of working on the solo records and a few of Mavis's records where I've played most of the instruments as, you know, it made me better. I mean, you had to get better to, to get it to sound right. It seems like you have a really enviable setup in the loft. I know other musicians who visited say it's, you know, it's incredible, which is, for those who don't know, that this studio sort of setup that you have, does the comfort of it ever work against you? Is that something you ever have to subvert <clears throat> that it's so at home? Because, you know, there's always people who go to like, you know, the haunted castle in France to try to set out atmosphere for a record and then you're you're doing quite the opposite. No, I don't really believe in those vibe seekers philosophies. I think you go to work and you trust that it's not magic. It's 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 you can work and something that you didn't know was going to happen is going to happen whether you light a candle or not. <laughs> I think I think it's like I've been in Stephen Towers dressing room. He, he does not hold to your philosophy. Okay? No, I know there are a lot of people that disagree and maybe 
maybe there's something to setting an atmosphere and I'm just not as mystical about it as that. I mean, what could be more magical than knowing that you came to this workshop in the morning and you know that you're going to go home that night and something will be there that wasn't there when you got there in the morning, you know? You once found in uh, Woody Guthrie's papers a note to himself that said, uh, write a song every day. Mm-hmm. And d- have you literally taken that to heart? No, not in that I like I feel terrible if I don't write a song every day. But I have taken it to heart in the sense that I feel better and I know that I feel better when I've made something. If I've taken the time to write in my notebook for a while or if I've sat down with a guitar long enough to come up with something that I didn't think I'd heard before or I certainly I hadn't played before. Even sitting down and learning someone else's song, I look at as being a kind of a creative way of spending some time in it during a day. You recorded an entire album, like bonus album of those unused Dylan lyrics that you got for a project. Do you think we'll ever get to hear the other stuff? I don't really know who it's up to at this point. I certainly would like to share it. I've cannibalized a lot of this songs now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Evergreen on Warmer was a song that had Dylan lyrics. Uh, There's a handful. Wherever I travel, I'll tell you what I've seen. It's more of a, he's been your songwriting collaborator for some time now, is really what that is, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it would be hard for me to take any lyrics off of his albums that he's put out and not hear the song when I look at them. But that was what's amazing about looking at unused Dylan lyrics is I could hear a Dylan song, but it wasn't one on any of the records. Just because I spent so much time listening to his music and maybe have tried to emulate a lot of it over my lifetime. So it came really, really fast. It was really, I wrote and recorded all the songs in like a weekend. And I thought I was going to get to be a part of the project that became Lost on the River. Right. And then my wife got sick and, you know, I needed to stay home for her treatment. And so I thought, well, I'll just send them what I did. <laughs> and they, they weren't interested in it for some reason. I don't know. I, I understand, actually, where they wanted it to all come out of some camaraderie and some moment in And time. it was all supposed to be on film and stuff. So I yeah, think that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So hopefully we'll get to hear that, even if you've cannibalized it. Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about classic rock and complicit and all that, <laughs> it did remind me of a, another part in your book book, Let's Go So We Can Get Back. So great rock and roll memoir, a great memoir period. There's a part where you talk about seeing arena shows in the early 80s as a kid, The Who and Springsteen. And I'm jealous because I would have loved to see The Who in the 80s. I was a little too young in the early 80s. I I did see them in 89 and maybe had a similar reaction, come to think of it. But I'd like (laughs) to think that they were a little better back then. But basically, you hated it. You felt that there was like all these macho moves. You felt like it was all muddied sound. And it wasn't Mm. as alive to you as the smaller shows you were seeing. I thought that's an interesting interesting sort of aesthetic shaping moment, it seems like. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it might speak to some myopia <laughs> on my part, because I had started with smaller shows. My first concert was in uh, Mississippi Nights, when it was a it was like really small place. It eventually became bigger in St. Louis. But at the time I saw the Stray Cats, when they only had a record out in England at the time, and it was a pretty small audience, pretty small place. And it was really easy for me to project myself onto that stage or to feel like this is really happening. This is something to aspire to. It seems plausible. None of the arena shows that I ended up seeing much later, I felt like that. 
I felt like I was at a sporting event. I don't know. I didn't hate him. I don't think I, maybe in the book I might have exaggerated. I don't know if, I think I hated that aspect of it. I hated that it seemed to push me further away from the empowering thing that I got from even listening to records at home. I could project myself into those records and hear myself as a person that could do that. And that was so inspiring as a little boy, <laughs> a little boy that felt somehow alienated and a little bit outside and of the way normal people seem to be able to converse and, and have connections with each other. That just seemed like if I could do that, this is the weird part of it is like I really looked at it like it would be some efficient form of revenge. And I've come to realize that it doesn't work that way, <laughs> that it has not it has not punished or vanquished any of my foes from my childhood. <laughs> In fact, it has been met with 100 percent indifference. <laughs> yeah, you, you describe actually running into someone from your high school at a restaurant in your hometown and them demonstrating their indifference to your success. But it was very sweet that uh, I think Spencer told him that you won a Grammy. Yeah. yeah. And then the next words out of their mouth were, uh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many interesting things in the book that also kind of apply to the creative process behind this album, other stuff. I was struck when you said that Sky Blue Sky was actually harder than the records that people might assume were harder. That making something straightforward or seemingly straightforward is harder. Can you expand on that? I thought that was fascinating. Well, I thought that a record like Summer Teeth or Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, even A Ghost is Born a little bit, I think we were starting along this path on A Ghost is Born. We grew out of performing Yankee Hotel Foxtrot on the road and realizing that we could do these songs and actually perform them, even though they'd been pieced together and edited together in the studio and constructed more like a collage. And that made me feel like we should try harder to get these arrangements hammered out so they can have some of that fire of a live performance when we record them. And then by the time Sky Blue Sky came around, I was really convinced that we had put together a little bit of a, a rock orchestra and that the best way to utilize it would not be to be sitting around making decisions from an infinite pool of what you can do with Pro Tools or a modern recording studio, but should be focusing on the band working towards thinking of itself as one instrument. Mm. And that is hard. It is hard to get a six-piece band to make space for each other and to create arrangements that are doing to us at the time, trying to do the same things that a fader move could do or an edited guitar part or something an overdub could do. You can make all kinds of emotional constructs out of modern recording that are sonic accoutrement or something. It's like it's a different way of looking at it. It's like uh, you can make something come crashing into a mix that doesn't belong there and that will have an emotional impact. But I was really interested in working on my ability to write that into the music in the first place as opposed to having it be an overdub. So that was harder. I think it's harder. I think it's much harder to write a clear, concise song than it is to write an atmospheric, abstract, you know, impressionistic lyric. And I've done a lot of that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just think that it is harder to be understood and to be comfortable with being understood because it opens you up to a lot more criticism than being inscrutable. Your solo work was very direct lyrically and also in more straight ahead musically. 
I mm-hmm. would say, you know, there were moments that reminded me of your earliest stuff and definitely sometimes rootsier. And sometimes the first soul record, I was like, people wouldn't have been surprised if this was the first record you made after Uncle Tupelo, mm-hmm. you know, but this record is a little more elliptical lyrically and has a lot, as we said, like a lot of different stuff going on musically. If that was the revelation you had around Sky Blue Sky, how does that compare to the way you made this record? Well, I felt like we, well, we did that and I'm glad we did it that way. And we made that, those steps or made that progress, at least to us, that we accomplished that goal. We made a record where we hardly overdubbed it all. And we were able to perform almost all those songs live almost exactly the way they are on the record. So just having done that, it's not as appealing to do it again. So each record kind of ends up with its own little unifying force to push it into being. And this record was much more along the lines of like another unifying kind of overall blanket concept was what if we didn't have record collections? What if we were relying upon like an oral history of music and had to kind of recreate rock music from some distant memory or some handed down lore. That's awesome. And actually that reminds me of another thing I loved in your book, which because I had a similar thing growing up in a mostly pre-internet era, which is that thing where you would read about a famous record, Big Star's mm-hmm. Third. And mm-hmm. Same thing for me. Mm-hmm. You'd read about Big Star's Third and you would construct this record in your mind mm-hmm. because months and years might go mm-hmm. by before you ever heard it. And it didn't really yield anything for me, but it did mm-hmm. in your case it helped you become a creator of music, I think. Well, I've actually, yeah, I I sit and write about records all the time that I want to (laughs) make and think about records I want to make. And in fact, I have like an ongoing project that I've been working on for like 15 years, which is I have friends, anybody that can write that is a friend of mine, like George Saunders or Scott McCoy or, you know, just people that I know think about things in a similar way. I'll have them write a record review of an imaginary record. Wow. And then my goal is to record a song or two off of each of those records and put it out as a compilation. But start with the review, start with the biography of the band. It can be from any part of the world. It could be a 10 piece, could be a one piece, but just give me as much information as you feel like you need to give me. And I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but it's a real, that's what I mean by being at the studio every day. There's a lot of little exercises (laughs) that, I don't know, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that I don't know if everybody needs to hear, but I, I find it pretty satisfying. One of the most amazing examples is that you read that very exultant London Calling review I think in Rolling Stone, and imagine the record that would be, and then we're actually disappointed by the real record, which is just too great. Well, yeah, over time, I came to really love that record, but yeah, it made it sound like it was going to lay waste to everything I'd ever heard in my life, and I was ready for that, (laughs) and it was a lot more, I mean, there were jazz elements or horn sections. It, It actually kind of was the opposite of that. It kind of was the first punk rock record that really belied ambition and a desire to like join, I don't know, the bigger picture of canonical rock and roll or something, you know? I mean, that's what they were going for. I think at the time, even, I think they consciously were going for, let's make a big artistic statement. And that in itself was kind of antithetical to punk rock at the time. So I wanted to talk about Before Us, which had this sort of haunting, repeated thing about alone with the people who have come before. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it in a couple of ways, and probably both wrong, but Mm -hmm. about one's own ancestors, and then you are sort of musical ancestors. When you're writing, you're alone, except for all the people who wrote songs before you. How wrong am I about both? And where does that come from? And let's hear that first. Lying silent in the drawer 
I just I, I think I've written a lot of songs that have some reference to ghosts or, or thinking about ghosts, and so I don't really know. I don't really know exactly what I meant. It just felt like a powerful thing to be reminded of. For me, I think of the song originated being home alone in our house, you know, and hearing the front door close and and realizing. You know, I'm, I'm alone in this house that has been here for a lot longer than I have been and how that's kind of always true. And the notion of honoring the sacrifice of people that, that came before you. I mean, the idea of sacrifice seems to be not as valued as it once was. Mm. Even my mom and dad, I think, were from a generation that were absolutely required. It was required to sacrifice for your family. Or my mom collected scrap metal for World War II when she was a toddler. Right. You know? And your dad was on 24-hour call mm -hmm. for, you know, which you can kind of say it took you a long time to appreciate how demanding that was. And that was absolutely a sacrifice for the family. So I think dead people are dead. <laughs> but I do think that it's maybe important, or to me at least, to be reminded that I should be committed, I should be working hard, I should be sacrificing what I can. And then I'm not alone, even when I'm alone. Is that what you were saying in your, your assessment of the lyrics in a way? Let's just call me utterly correct. Yeah. yeah. Basically. <laughs> Let me follow on that and get deep for one second, which is that you said your idea of a small talk or ideal small talk would be like, what do you think happens after you die? <laughs> so do you think when you're dead, you're dead? Or do you have further thoughts on that? I don't know. That would lean towards that suspicion. But I also think that all of the theories of what could happen, like reincarnation or heaven, or none of them seem as implausible to me as being here. So it's like actually being alive is just as weird. Like, where were you? Now you're here. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's enough for me to maintain some sort of open mind about other people's ideas of it and not necessarily force myself into some rigid way of thinking about it. I don't think it matters what I think, <laughs> you know, but I do think it's helpful to be open to other people's needs. I think it's a need. I think it's a need that people have to convince themselves of something one way or the other. And that's that's okay. On that note, <laughs> Jeff Tweedy, thanks so much for being here. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We'll see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.